You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 172. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and your attention today. Apologies that I have been absent the last several weeks, actually. Three weeks, I think it is in total. I had some physical and spiritual engagements that took up and occupied my time and attention. Um, Ended up going to the ER to get blood and urine panels to make sure that I didn't have a bacterial infection in my stomach, that I didn't have kidney stones, bleeding ulcers, all kinds of things that we were worried about at the time that severely limited me physically to what I was able to do. And then following that, I had three deaths in four days, Um, people that I uh, serve as their pastor. So that took up uh, quite a bit of time as well this past week. But now I am back just in time to record an episode or two, and then I'm off again to speak at a conference and then disappear into Mexico for a couple days or a week or so, as I do every year. But before I disappear yet again, I wanted to sit down and make sure that I put something back out there as far as podcasts, because we're almost up to 900 subscribers and followers on Spotify, and that number continues to grow. So thank you to everybody on Spotify, Apple Podcast, wherever you listen to the show. It is gratifying to know that even though I've been absent the past three weeks, the number of downloads and plays on the podcast has not slowed down. Maybe it gave you time to catch up even. So I thank you and I appreciate your encouragement. Uh, Everyone who subscribes to Warrior Priest at WordPress, thank you for the thumbs up and the emails. You can get a hold of me on Instagram at Warrior Priest or at Warrior Priest Jim and Podcast or Reverend Donovan Riley. I have three different Instagram pages so I can kind of keep separate all the different things that I'm doing. You can check out the articles that I write at spotterup.com. I write articles on Stoicism and Bushido, and applying the principles of Stoicism and Bushido to modern questions and challenges. I write on matters of faith and spirituality, especially in relationship to conflict. And then I have just recently started also writing a regular weekly article on early Anglo-Saxon epic poetry and wisdom, and looking at both the 7th through 11th century Christian faith of the Britons, especially amongst the Gaels, the Scots, the Welsh, and so on, but also then looking at epic poetry like the Battle of Malden, Beowulf, of course, my favorite, but also looking at the Lorica of Loading, which is a Gaelic book of prayers and, and some homily fragments, and again, asking the question, what can early Anglo-Saxons teach us today about hero- heroism, virtue, courage, bravery, Uh, perseverance, faith. And so you can read those articles. I try to write three a week for spotterup.com. Check that out. I also write theological articles for 1517.org. Plus I do the Banned Books podcast for 1517. Every week on Friday, we do a live stream on YouTube and then the podcast goes up a day or two after that. And then I also do the Area of Operations podcast and YouTube live stream for We Fight Monsters, which is part of the spotterup.com network. So if you're not sick of my voice after an hour of the Warrior Priest podcast, you can check out the Theology podcast with me and Christopher Gillespie, Banned Books, at 1517. You can get that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Otherwise, you can also listen to uh, Area of Operations on We Fight Monsters on Spotify and um, Apple Podcasts. So yeah, I'm a 
I'm a little busy. Uh, I keep busy. Um, I'm a hyperactive, probably as you can tell. And therefore, other people who are also hyperactives like to have conversations with me, which I truly appreciate. It gives me an outlet for all of the things that are constantly orbiting uh, my synopses. So that being said, you can also support the podcast by going to Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast, click the support button. Everything that you help uh, as far as the financial side of the house goes back into improving this podcast, getting resources such as books, articles, updating my software, updating my hardware. Everything goes back into the podcast so that I do not have to use advertisements to break up the podcast. I don't want to do that. I think it's annoying when other podcasts do it, but your donations, your support of this podcast, especially the financial side of the house, helps a long way in me not having to go to advertisements to basically pay for each episode. Again, that being said, today then on the podcast, I want to return to uh, a deeper conversation or, or rumination on the matter of fear, propaganda, and social control. I've talked about this before on the podcast, and I often rant about it. So I thought rather than go off on tangents in a kind of general way, based on whatever I'm thinking about today, we'll kind of zero in and be more focused about this and dive into this whole matter of how fear is weaponized by way of propaganda, and then how that propaganda is turned at the citizens of a country in order to create fear, this kind of Hegelian dialectic, and then how through that use of fear, through the means of propaganda, usually in you know corporate media, newspapers, journals, and so on, it conditions the population in such a way that we are then essentially tailor-made to obey and to give away our freedoms and our rights. And so fear then, beginning with fear, is essentially, at least philosophically and even theologically, fear is the, the thing. It is the, the basis, the most primal of human emotions. And therefore, it is the most difficult for us to rein in and get a handle on. When we are surprised, we act in fear and terror. When we're overwhelmed, fear. When we're in love, fear. When we are hopeful, fear. Fear undergirds and forms the foundation of almost every experience, every feeling, every interaction that we have throughout our lives. Babies cry because they're afraid. Afraid because they're hungry and they're afraid they're not going to get fed. Afraid that they're not going to get the attention that they're asking for and so they cry. Children throw temper tantrums because they feel like they're out of control and their voice isn't being heard and they react with fear by raging and screaming and throwing a tantrum because anger is a manifestation of fear. It's a coping mechanism. This is why dogs and other animals, when they're afraid, bark and bare their teeth and their hackles go up on their back. That anger, that reaction, that violent reaction is a manifestation of fear. And so fear is the most primal, the most primeval, primordial of human emotions. And like I said, that's why it is so fundamentally dangerous because it will cause us to react to scenarios in a way that is outside of logic, outside of reason, outside of control, self-control in particular. And that's why it's highly useful than fear when the immediate threat of harm makes itself known to us. 
When the threat of hurt or harm, when the threat of danger, which again is the threat of hurt or harm, is manifest, fear is the natural response to that. Because fear is also then, I don't have control over this. I'm not able to write the script. And so fear, I think anyways, ultimately is an expression of our being out of control. This is why even in the Bible, it says fear God, because God is outside of our control. We just finished a Bible class on Isaiah chapter 55, where God says, my ways are not your ways. My devisings are not your devisings. As far as the heaven is above the earth, so are my ways above your ways. So we naturally fear God because he is not like us and he is not something that we can figure out as if he's an equation or he's a feeling. And that causes us to fear God then because God is outside of our control. And we don't want a God that's outside of our control. We want a God that is within our control, which is then when we construct gods, when we formulate gods to worship, and then we erect religions around them and build our doctrine around these human gods, it's safe, it's predictable, it's right angles, we know the code, we know all the hacks, because that God is acceptable so long as it's under our control. But the God that is not under our control is the one that causes fear. Same thing in relationships, same thing at work, same thing in a fight, same thing in war. So fear can completely debilitate us. It can cripple us emotionally, socially, physically even. Because again, it's an emotion. And I was just talking that Dr. Martin Luther when he was teaching on the Ten Commandments, said that the final commandment against coveting is the second most powerful of the commandments after the first commandment to have no other gods. Because I can prevent my hand from stealing. I can shut my mouth and control my tongue so that I don't bear false witness against my neighbor. I can force myself through an act of will to honor my mother, my father, and others in authority. I can force myself to go to church on Sunday even. I can force myself not to misuse God's name. I can do that. But what I can't control are my emotions, my heart. And coveting involves the heart. It's emotional. When I see something that I want, I have to have it. Whether it be a person, a thing, whatever that thing is, that person is that my heart attaches itself to, I can't control that. It's a very powerful thing then. So, you know, to use an extreme example, because I was just talking with someone else who was expressing this, this struggle with me. When you're in love with somebody and they don't love you in return and your heart attaches itself, your emotions attach themselves to that other person. And so when they're angry, you're upset. When they're sad, you're also sad. When they're afraid, you fear with them. It's very difficult to detach yourself emotionally from someone that you love. And yet we see this in breakups. We see this in divorces all the time. We see this when I love someone or I'm attracted to someone. I want to get to know somebody and they have no interest in me. Once my heart has attached itself to that person, to that thing. And this is also important then on a kind of broader, more abstract level. If I attach my heart, my emotions to the success or failures of a sports team, for example, when the team wins, I'm in a great mood. When the team loses, everybody needs to stay away because I'm going to be upset and grumbly and gruff and grisly for the next couple days. If my political party wins, I'm in a great mood and all is right with the world. 
when my political party loses, America is doomed. We're on the edge of falling like the Roman Empire. And I'm sure that the Armageddon is right around the corner. This is what happens when we attach our emotions to things like teams, political parties, which we treat like sports teams. We treat politics like sports in this country, unfortunately. And we have to take a side because, again, we have to control the meaning of our life. We have to control the narrative that shapes the meaning and purpose of our lives. And we need to know that other people also share our worldview because it gives us a sense of place and belonging in a world where we often feel adrift and without purpose, or at the very least, we feel out of control again. And therefore, since we're not in control, we can't write the scripts. Other people are saying and doing things that we disagree with, or we, we wouldn't do it quite the way they do it. Knowing that you're on the right team, it helps push that fear back. Because virtue signaling, as we call it, is extremely strong as a mechanism for controlling fear. I am morally right because I'm on the side of the winning team, or I chose the right candidate, or I was on the winning side of the latest conflict or war. And because I was right, because I was on the winning side, that makes me right. I'm good because my team won. That's another way to cope with fear and not being in control of events and in control of people and their decisions. So what we then know from experience, most of us, is Fear then is used as a tool to manipulate us by those in positions of power, both in the past, we can study this throughout history, but of course in the present, we see this all the time, and how people, especially corporate media, for example, how politicians and people in power will then use our fears to control aspects of our lives, or at least the attempt to control every corner of our life. And if there's nothing that we are afraid of, those in power will create something for us to be afraid of. A war, a famine, a pestilence, death itself. And so ever since the Industrial Revolution, ever since the Enlightenment, we have become, especially in the Western world, in the industrialized nations, first world as they're called, we have been increasingly insulated, shielded, from dangers and threats that used to be a matter of daily experience for people. My ancestors in Ireland, for example, my wife's ancestors in Norway and Finland, on a daily basis could die if they didn't secure food for themselves. If they didn't prepare properly for the winter, they could die. If they went out on a boat fishing and they didn't know what the weather was like and they couldn't read the currents, they could die or at the very least, not catch any fish. If they weren't prepared to defend themselves against the next village on the other side of the mountain or Viking marauders or whoever it might be, they were going to die. We in the present tense in the United States for, oh, quite a long time, actually, most of the 20th century, we've always gone, quote unquote, over there to engage in conflicts to this very day for the most part. And after the Civil War, uh, collectively as a nation, we decided let's not do that again. And so now the Civil War that's occurring in, an, in the United States in particular, and there is a Civil War occurring, it's a bloodless Civil War. Most of it takes a place online. Most of it takes place in virtual fake reality so that it is 
mostly benign. You have doxing, you have real world consequences for what goes, takes place online, but it is much more contained and minute compared to civil wars in the past, which were bloody and separated families and caused divisions within clans, tribes, and nations. Since the industrial revolution, especially since the beginning, the advent of the 20th century, we have insulated ourselves more and more from the dangers and the threats that our ancestors faced on a daily basis from the world, from God, from others. But yet, we're still afraid. That's the point. The reason that we seek and the reason we go to such ends to buffer ourselves, to create a kind of membrane between ourselves and quote-unquote nature, the natural world, is we're afraid of it. For example, when I go in the ocean, I am no longer the apex predator. I'm at the bottom. I don't have fins or gills. I can't swim at 40 miles an hour under the water. I can't walk on water to escape any threats that are underneath me in the water. I can't see very well in the water. I can't breathe water. I am at the mercy, not just of the monsters that dwell in the deep, but the current. I can't fight the current. And I can't control the tide going in and out. And I can't control the current. And I can't control what's around me in the water. And so I fear the ocean. So I do what is necessary to insulate and protect myself from the ocean. One way you do that is move to the middle of a country so that you're nowhere near an ocean, for example. Other ways to do that is to build an unsinkable ship. Another way to do that is to simply empty the ocean of its monsters or avoid them altogether. But the same thing happens when you grow up in or around the woods. I grew up in northeastern Minnesota on the Iron Range. I lived on the edge of the Boundary Waters canoe area. Where we originally lived at, there was my backyard and then 150 miles to the Canadian border. Nothing but woods and some logging trails. So if I got lost and started going the wrong way in the woods, I could very easily need fire and rescue to come out and locate me. And I did get lost in the woods one time and one time only. And even though I thought I was far, far from home, when I finally heard my dad's gunshots, I was walking in circles, just like the cliches. I was about two miles from my house and I was a hundred yards from a highway. Didn't even know it. And that taught me a valuable lesson, which again is, I am not in control of this situation. And I even knew how to tell time by the sun and I knew how to navigate through the woods relatively well, not great, but you know, for a 13 year old, pretty good. But yet in my fear when I heard something coming through the woods that was heavy and when I broke free of the tree line and ended up in a swamp, in a slough, and then didn't have the landmarks that I used to navigate, when I lost contact with my, my yard and my house and I couldn't see the smoke coming up out of the chimney, when I couldn't locate and get my bearings, fear overtook me and panic. And of course, when you panic, you make choices that are not logical or reasonable or safe a lot of the time. And so that taught me that after that, I became much more serious about knowing where I was at when I was in the woods, not wandering off the path, which I teach my children, never get out of the boat to a quote apocalypse now, and to recognize that the natural world does not forgive and you are not at the top of the food chain. But when you live in a city and you live inside of a house or a condo or an apartment, when everything is in a box waiting for you to come and pick it up and pay your money, 
when you drive back and forth to work and the most exposure that you get to nature is a park or when you camp at the side of the road for your vacation every year, you get this false understanding of reality, this false appreciation for the world. But you're also shielded from it so that you're not aware of the realities of the world, especially the natural world. And as a consequence, then, people can use that fear that we have of the natural world and use it to manipulate us by saying such things as, there's too many people on earth, which is statistically a lie. And that there's overpopulation and we're killing the earth, which statistically is a lie. And yet we believe it because we're afraid of the earth. And because we have no control over the earth, <clears throat> even though many powerful people wish that they had power over the earth, because we have no power over it and because inherently, innately, we know we're not the apex predator. We don't have fangs and claws. We don't have wings and antlers. We're not fast like a cheetah. We're not powerful like a water buffalo. We don't have the, the senses of an eagle or a hawk. We can't swim like a orca. We know, innately we know, that we are not in control and that there are creatures out there and there are forces at loose in the world like the seasons and we have no control over how hot it's going to be in the summer or how cold it's going to be in the winter. And so these people that have power and they have access to media, they have access to unlimited amounts of money, access to world leaders, they then use our fear of nature to get us all worked up about the end of the world. Like I just said an hour ago, I'm on my fifth climate crisis in my lifetime. I'm done. I'm over it. It's either too hot or too cold. There's a hole in the ozone layer or the glaciers are melting. The glaciers are growing. The polar bears are brown. The coral reefs are gone. Oh, wait, they're back. It's, it's always the same thing every generation. And since I've been around 52 years, I've heard this five times. And at a point, you, you come to realize at a certain point, this is fear porn, as we call it. It's fear porn. One, they want you to watch it. And just like sexual pornography, it's a simulation of reality. It's a simulation of sex. And some people even confuse pornography for a simulation of love and a normal, sexually intimate human relationship when it is none of those things. I remember a number of years ago, out of just a need to know, I went down a rabbit hole and learned everything that I could about the porn industry, how you get into it, what it involves, how you set up scenes for filming, all of it. I wanted to understand the mechanics, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak. And it is interesting to me how organized porn is, or at least was. Now it's kind of a free-for-all with OnlyFans and, and being able to start your own porn websites seemingly every day, more and more people do this. But yeah, you're simulating relationships, you're simulating sex, you're simulating intimacy. And then now with the advent of, of screens and how easy it is to access pornography, at, you know, in a moment, you just pull your phone out of your pocket, open up your search browser and boom, you're there. That now you're being exposed to porn earlier and earlier in life. So now children, before they even have an understanding of what sex is, are watching it. And then they're like, well, that's what sex is. And so then they go into relationships expecting that that's what sex is, but they have not yet formulated in their own minds, this is not real. This is a simulation. 
And it's really just designed to stimulate your dopamine and your endorphins and get your oxytocin flowing. It's like going to a casino and getting that same feeling from the casino. It's the same thing. It's, it's addiction is what it is. It's trying to get you addicted to the porn. Like it's getting you addicted to staying in the casino. Like it's getting you addicted to opiates. Like it's getting you addicted to fear. And that's what fear porn does. It gets you addicted so that you can't stop watching the news. Because if you can't stop because you're afraid of missing out, that's what sells ad revenue. That's what gets that person elected to the Senate, to Congress, to the White House. That's what gets you to say, we need to give away more of our civil liberties and rights because we need more people in places of power to protect us from the things that scare us. And isn't it great then that the world is attacking us? Isn't that great? It's an unsolvable problem. Like I said, since the, what was it? The, the, what is it? The Council of Rome in 1968, what is it called? The School of Rome, whatever it's called. In 1968, they formulated this whole climate crisis propaganda curriculum. This is why in 1978, then Earth Day was invented. It was all part of the school in Rome and their plan to essentially use climate and the world as a weapon to control and manipulate society. And so going back to Seneca, the Stoic Roman philosopher Seneca, we're going back thousands of years now, in his letters from a Stoic, Seneca writes, there are more things likely to frighten us than there are to crush us. We suffer more often in imagination than in reality. I woke up this morning for example. And as happens to me, because I suffer from anxiety, which is simply fear, cranked up to 11, my first thought was of someone that I know who is my enemy. Now, this person isn't my enemy. In fact, I don't even know this person's name. He's one of my students. He's a brand new student and one of my Muay Thai students. And Training him and teaching him because he's a new student is always a challenge. He's awkward. He's jerky. He has no self-control, so he doesn't know how to punch and kick and do anything under control. Everything's just jerky and heavy-handed. So I woke up and my first thought out of my brain was, if I have to spar with him on Saturday and he hits me hard or he kicks me too hard or he does something that I don't like, how am I going to respond? And then I played through this entire scenario in my mind. I was writing the screenplay to a movie in my mind that then somewhere else in my mind is it, that part is saying, okay, now we have to make this true. We have to be prepared for this to come true on Saturday. Well, A, it's Wednesday. B, this isn't going to happen because it can't happen. It's impossible for this to happen because he is a human being with his own thoughts and feelings. I am a human being with my own thoughts and feelings and he is not in my head. And he would never do the things that I'm imagining that he might do because he's been trained not to do those things. And even if he did those things and he did hurt me, he would immediately apologize because just judging from his overall character, from what I've learned about him so far, he's actually a kind person and he's very eager to learn. So then why would I do this? Why would I waste, I'd say like three minutes before I'm like, knock it off, <laughs> get up and go to the bathroom, stop doing this. You do this all the time. Why do that? Fear, fear of the unknown, fear of, well, what will this person do if and when we spar on Saturday? What will this person do if given the opportunity to strike me? What if I can't control 
the way he behaves? What if I can't control his attitude and his emotions? What if, what if, what if? Those are all emotional responses to something that isn't real, that will never happen the way that I imagine it, because it never has. It only exists in my imagination, and it is only a manifestation of my anxiety. So that even when I recognize in the moment, you're doing it again. You're letting your anxiety run roughshod over your morning. You're ruining your morning. You didn't start your day off with gratitude. Now you're trying to catch back up to yourself. Stop it. Why? Well, because everything's going great. That's why. (laughs) Because I've taken care of and I am treating my physical symptoms for what's afflicting me. And I am treating my spiritual engagements with the enemy. And I'm doing what is necessary to get back on the right path, both physically and spiritually, both mentally and emotionally. And yet because I am right in the pocket, so to speak, and everything is going in the direction that we want it to go, my mind is then free to wander and to say, well, everything's going so well. And everything seems to be really dialed in. So, well, we haven't worried about anything or anyone for a minute. So let's do that instead. And in the morning, When I'm still waking up and I'm not focused, that's when it usually attacks me. Then, and when I wake up at two or three in the morning and my brain decides that it needs to solve all of the world's problems right then and there. And so the more things that there are in your life that frighten you, he's saying those things that frighten you, that's all they are. They're just there to frighten you. And there are more things in our life that frighten us than actually will crush us. And so as a consequence, we suffer more from our own imagination than from reality, which is my point. And we do this constantly. The more attention you pay to social media, the more attention that you pay to corporate media, the more attention you pay to the fear mongers, the more likely you are to get distracted. And then the more likely you are to be afraid. And fear breeds anxiety and insecurity and you're not making logical, reasonable choices anymore, you're emotional, and that's when you are ripe to be taken advantage of, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and intellectually. Why do you think college professors love to scare their students and create that feeling of insecurity? Because the bad professors, the malignant tumors in any faculty, elementary, high school, college, those malicious agents create fear and uncertainty in the minds of their students because they know that is the open door to feed the students that professor's ideology, that professor's doctrine, that professor's fears and insecurities. Isn't that Mother's Little Helper? Isn't that a part of the Rolling Stones song about Mother's Little Helper? Oh no, maybe it's a Who song. Either the Who or the Rolling Stones. Anyways, you know, fill you up with their insecurities. It's also part of Pink Floyd the Wall. Comfortably numb. And, uh, or maybe it is comfortably numb that I'm thinking about. Anyways, if you know, tag me, email me, text me. I think it's, it might be comfortably numb though. Anyways, our parents fill us up with their fears and insecurities. I, as a parent, do it to my children. It's inevitable because it is raw and it is primal. And to be clear though, at this point, fear is also healthy and good. Fear is what warns you that an enemy is approaching. Fear is what says, don't wait until it snows to get ready for winter. Fear says, don't walk into the water if you don't know how to swim. Fear is also healthy if we harness that fear and use it as kind of like radar, an early warning system. I was just explaining this to my five-year-old last night. When our dog reacts negatively to someone, 
that's a sign for her to stay away from that person until we, as her parents, check that person out. Because as I explained, dogs can smell things and dogs can see and hear things that we can't. And so if my dog doesn't like somebody, there's usually a reason. I may not see it in the moment, but if I just take a step back and wait, it'll reveal itself. And so we teach our children that. If our dog says the person's okay, that person's usually okay. So fear is a good thing. It's there to protect us as well as being aware that fear can also then drive us to an emotional state where we're not thinking rationally and we're being driven and manipulated by people who benefit from our fear. And so I think that's the distinction there. The dichotomy is fear is useful when we recognize that it's trying to warn us about something and that we then need to take steps and take responsibility to prepare ourselves for that thing versus allowing fear to control us and drive us in a direction. And then when someone goes, why are you doing this? I don't know. I'm just afraid and everybody else is running this direction too. And so, yes, there are many fears that are imagined that we construct in our own minds, but they have real world consequences. We allow our fears to actually drive us, as I said, unreasonably and and thoughtlessly in directions that normally we would never go in. And likewise, then people that want to take advantage of us, people that want to manipulate us in our relationships or at work or politically or just culturally, they will recognize what are the things that make all of these people over here afraid. We're going to attack that. We're going to use that, the power of fear, we're going to weaponize that against them in order to control them. Because once you and I are captured, captivated by a fear of some threat, some immediate imminent danger, whether it's real or not, doesn't matter. Our cognitive capacity to think and to reason just shuts down and we go into safety mode. And that's when we're the easily, the most easily manipulated. And so Edmund Burke, he's an 18th century philosopher. Edmund Burke said, no passion so effectually robs the mind of all of its powers of action and reasoning like fear. There's no emotion, no passion that robs us of our powers to act and to think for ourselves. There's nothing like fear to just throw all that out the window. This is why, as I've said before, going all the way back to the pharaohs and even before them, thousands and thousands of years, those who are in positions of power will intentionally, on purpose, invoke fear in the citizens so that they can control us. Because if we're fighting with each other in a civil war, if we're fighting with other peoples and other nations in war, and we don't recognize then that our leaders are behind the civil war, or they are behind both sides of the conflict, they're funding both sides, they're arming both sides. If we never notice that the people in power who say that they have our best interests in hand are actually malevolent and authoritarians and autocrats. If we never recognize that they're the actual threat, they're the actual problem, they are going to remain not only in power, but we're going to demand that they take even more power away from us, protect us from our neighbors, protect us from the people to the north of us, protect us from those people over there, protect us from the thing, from the earth, from the sky gods, whoever. And so Henry Frankfurt, he wrote this book called Intellectual Adventure of Ancient Man. And he notes in his book, Intellectual Adventure of Ancient Man, Henry Frankfurt, 
he notes that between 1800 and 1600 BC, there was this seeming like, almost like a, like an illness, like a fear disease that infected people's minds throughout ancient Egypt. And actually I've talked about this on the show before. So this is where I got that from, is that throughout ancient Egypt then, there was this fear that infected people's minds. Well, how did that happen? Because they were told that an invasion by foreign rebels that were hungry for power and conquest were coming to take over Egypt and subject these people. And what happens then is what the pharaohs did is that they used an, an actual threat. There was an actual real justifiable threat. There was a real army that was coming over the hill, so to speak. But yet they had driven that enemy away. They had repelled that invasion. But then after they repelled the invasion, people started to get up in arms and started to complain about the way things were run, complain about the Pharaoh, complain about the economy, complain about, you know, everyday things and blaming the Pharaoh and his court. The elites don't care about us. The elites are taxing us too heavily. The elites don't care if we live or die and they're exploiting us for our labor. And the pharaohs realized these people are going to rebel and revolt against us. And they realized, oh, well, we don't have an external threat right now. And therefore people are going to turn on us because we, they see the actual threat is, well, us now. And so in order to then maintain control of the Egyptian people, they concocted another story to scare the population. And that story was another army, a rebel army, is amassing at the borders of Egypt and they're coming to conquer us again. And of course, immediately, the people of Egypt stopped complaining about Pharaoh, stopped complaining about the way things were, the economy and their lifestyle, and they immediately demanded that the army be mustered once again and that the soldiers go to the border and protect the people from these foreigners. Sound familiar? So then Frankfurt goes on to explain, quote, the common desire for security need not have survived after the Egyptian empire extended the military frontier of Egypt all the way into Asia and thus completely removed the danger from their immediate borders. And so because the, the fear, the threat of an invading army amassing at the border had been removed because they'd pushed the border all the way out into Asia, there wasn't really anything for them to use to scare the people back into submission. So they invented one and sent because the people were getting restless. And so he continues, there were perils on the distant horizon, which could be invoked to hold the community together since unity was to the advantage of certain central powers. This fear psychosis that he calls it once engendered remained present. That is once we get these people to live in a state of fear, we must maintain this state of fear in perpetuity. They must always be afraid. Therefore, there must always be the threat of an invading army. There must always be the threat of a disease outbreak. There must always be the threat of an external danger that's going to come in and take away their life. And so there were forces, he writes, forces in Egypt which kept alive this fear psychosis in order to maintain the unified purpose of Egypt. This is 1800 to 1600 BC. Over 3000 years ago, they figured this out. And they're still using the same playbook 3000 years later. And yet, even 
a person like Frankfurt who lays it out and explains it in wonderful detail, simply, profoundly, here it is. Here's the, here's the playbook. Here's the strategy. They keep using it and we keep falling for it. That's what's amazing to me. So the whole idea of, you know, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, nobody learns from history. So therefore we are doomed to repeat history, which is why we keep repeating history. So we need to revise that old cliche and just turn it into an assertion. We are doomed because we don't learn from history. And so we create this artificial reality, the ruling class or the elites as we call them, they create, they literally construct a fear narrative, a fear drama for us. And then we fall into it. If it's not Russia, it's China. If it's not China, it's Hamas. If it's not Hamas, it's going to be the next terror group. It's going to be the next regime. You name it. The next dictator. It doesn't matter, right? Do you, do you really think that North Korea is an actual threat to the United States? And yet for a number of years leading up to the 2016 election, North Korea, Iran, these are imminent threats to the safety and security of the United States. Does that make any sense to you? These are countries that are smaller than most states in the United States. They're smaller in Texas. They're smaller in California. And yet we're supposed to believe that these are nuclear threats to us. At any moment, they're going to perfect their rocket program and an ICBM or some other hyper, you know, technological missile is going to cross the ocean and hit the United States. Why? Because like Egypt, the United States has pushed their borders out to cover the entire world. And therefore, there are no actual threats to the United States. Not from invading armies. And so they concoct external threats. Who is it that supplies North Korea with enriched uranium? Who is it that gives them their rocket technology? Who is it that gave $6 billion to Iran? Who then turned around and gave that money to Hezbollah and Hamas? Where did the Taliban get their weapons and armament from that they actually supplied to Hamas and Hezbollah? Well, when they're recovered, their United States-made weapons and armament, the money is the U.S. dollar, and the deep state, the CIA, the State Department, they've actually admitted openly, on camera, yeah, that's from us, we did that. And so, as I tell people, there's no such thing as Israel's good, Hamas is bad, Russia's good, China's bad, United States is good, uh, North Korea's bad. No, the, these, again, these are team politics. This is how you play the, the political game, the team game. It's all binary. It's either or, one or the other, blue or red. Pick a team, pick a side. Now you're good. They're bad. It's very binary. It's very limited. And it's, in, it's installed in us from the earliest education to be binary or thinking so that we're very easy to predict and control then. Because if I only have two thoughts, it's either me or them, and them are good or them are bad, it's then very easy for the powers that be to determine and predict which way I'm going to go, simply by the fear porn that they peddle. Versus if I have five or six or 13 different viewpoints, it's much more difficult now to predict how, what choice I'm going to make and which side I'm going to choose. Maybe I don't choose, choose any side, which is where I'm at. <laughs> Um, now a sudden it's more difficult because I say the United States government is evil. The Israeli government is evil. Hamas is evil, the government. 
the people that are running Hamas are evil and the people that carry out these attacks are evil. The Russian government is evil. The Chinese government is evil. The North Korean government is evil. Why? Because these people are malicious. These people only care about enriching themselves and they don't care about the civilians that are hurt in the process. And so rather than take a side and be pro this or anti that, pro Ukraine or anti Ukraine, Zelensky is a dictator. The government is a puppet government that was set up through a military coup in 2014 that was backed and funded by the CIA. Zelensky was chosen by the CIA to be a puppet dictator, just like Noriega, just like Saddam Hussein, just like the Shah of Iran was supposed to be in the 70s, and on and on it goes. That's how the United States government maintains power around the world. <clears throat> Control the outcomes by writing the script, by any means necessary. I asked this of somebody last week. I said, do you think the same politicians that have no moral qualms about drone bombing civilian populations overseas care about whether or not you live or die? Do you think they care about you deeply but don't care about anybody else? Do you think that they will kill other people in other countries to maintain their power and their money flow, but they wouldn't kill you to do the same? Did you notice, by the way, that all talk about Ukraine stopped last week because of Israel and Hamas? All talk of Biden and his administration and Hunter Biden and all that stopped. All talk of COVID and the shots and lockdowns and masks stopped. All of the internal conversations and debates and fights that we were having in the United States, the border, East Palestine, Flint, Michigan, Lahaina, Maui, all those conversations stopped. The immigrants in the hotels in New York City stopped. The chemical explosions stopped. The ammunition factory explosions, no talk. All of these things that we were talking about, all of these dots that normal people were starting to connect all of a sudden, because they, they were talking to me, they're like, I think I see this now. All of this chatter stopped as soon as the news came out about Israel and Hamas. All of it. And everybody told me, well, whose side are you on? Are you pro-Hamas or pro-Israel? And I said, I'm against any side that engages in the wanton killing of civilians. Because Palestinians and Israelites want to live their lives just the same as I want to live my life. And they don't want to have to look over their shoulder. They don't want to have to worry about a bomb falling on their house. They don't want to have to worry about their children being killed on their way to school or used as a human shield. They don't want their daughters raped. They want the same thing I want. But yet there are these entities who don't care about the civilians. They don't care about children. They don't care about you just trying to live your life because they want power they want money. They want everything that they would never, ever grant to you. And the way they get it is by scaring the living hell out of you and getting you so emotionally worked up that you don't detach and say, well, wait a minute. If that government over there is funding both sides of this conflict, then shouldn't we be looking at that government over there and blaming them for what's happening? Why are we blaming Hamas and Iran when the government of the United States is giving them money and military equipment? And if they have money and military equipment and my government is getting money and military equipment from the same government and we're killing each other with bullets made at the same factory and 
using money minted from the same place, maybe the enemy isn't that guy over there. Maybe the enemy is over there across the ocean, sitting in the Oval Office, sitting in Congress and the Senate, sitting in the State Department, the CIA, the military-industrial complex. Maybe we're not each other's enemies. Maybe we're being played. But we don't do that, right? We don't learn from 9-11. We don't learn from the Patriot Act. We don't learn from COVID and the lockdowns. And the proof of that is what's happening right now between Israel and Hamas, which wasn't even on board until Ukraine funding ran out. And all of a sudden, a week after the Ukraine money ran out and there was widespread public outcry and political outcry against funding Ukraine, when you have East Palestine, Flint, Lahaina, and others in the United States that need to be taken care of, our own people need to be taken care of, right? I heard a great quote last week, actually, that Congress and the Senate exist to take public money and put it in private pockets. That's what they exist to do. Politicians exist to take public money and put it in private pockets. I thought that was a brilliant summation of what's happening all the time. And they do it through fear and manipulation. Because to be blunt, I don't know who's right. I'm not in Israel. I have people that I know who are on the ground in Israel. I know Christians who are in Gaza and they don't want to be bombed. They don't want to be killed. They're not involved in this conflict. And so being told, well, get out, leave your house, leave your church, just leave, get out. Okay. But they have nowhere to go. That's their home. That's where they've been born and raised at. They live there. They have nowhere to go. So what do you do? Well, you wait and you hope that you don't die. (laughs) And so ultimately, I think anyways, you can be against a government, but for people. But also recognize then that if any side of any conflict, I don't care what the conflict is, let's divorce ourselves from current events, just any conflict, even if it's conflict between neighbors, if you threaten me and my family, I'm going to take measures to stop you from falling through on your threats. I don't care who you are, Christian, atheist, friend, not a friend. If you threaten my wife and my children, my response to you will be quick and decisive and violent. And yet, if after you threaten me, I find out that you were paid to threaten me by someone who wants me off, like off my property because they want to buy my house and develop it into a parking lot, let's say, right? But then that same person comes to me and says, hey man, I'll give you a couple thousand bucks if you can convince your neighbor to sell their house because we want to buy it and, and develop it. And then I find out, oh, wait a minute. So you paid my neighbor to try and scare me into leaving the neighborhood. And now you're going to pay me to try and convince my neighbor to sell their property. Maybe it's the banker or the real estate developer or the corporation that's trying to build the parking lot in the mall across the street that are the real threat, the real problem. But I can't do anything about that. You know, my neighbor's right in front of me. I can punch my neighbor in the nose, right? I can, I can take steps to deal with my neighbor immediately, person to person. But if it's a corporation or a bank or a realtor, that's more abstract. It's an entity. And then I would have to get a lawyer and I would have to go to court and sue them. And then I would have to prove that they were manipulating my neighbor and I in such a way that they were engaged in illegal and unethical business practices. Fear is a very powerful motivator to lash out and to try and kill or destroy or silence the thing that causes us fear. And again, governments know this. 
social influencers know this. People who are smart and pay attention know this. You and I know this from experience. And so we can be manipulated that way very easily. Just, you know, locate the thing that scares people the most and then turn that into an enemy and then point people in the direction of the enemy and say, if you kill that thing over there, if you tear that down or burn it to the ground, no more problem. And so we never pay attention to the motives and the intent of the people telling us this. So we run over there and we burn it down. We tear it down, we destroy it. We come home and we say, good, threat eliminated. And then a week later, there's another threat. And it's the same people telling us about the new threat. And we say, well, you know what? They warned us about the last threat and they were right about that one, we think. So we better go and and respond to this threat too. Never noticing that the only threats that we're reacting to are threats to the people in power. And we become the pawns on the board. We become the weapons that they use to eliminate the threats to their power and their control. We were talking about this, for example, and then I'll move on. I was watching a movie last night, or a show, sorry, Lupin on Netflix, French show. Wonderful show, love it to death. Third season, great. And the first episode's about this black pearl. Lupin's this gentleman thief, and he's going to steal this black pearl. And the whole episode is just like, how is he going to get away with it? And my wife made the comment, like this black pearl that ultimately is worth $20 million on the show. She's like, why is that worth money? And I said, it's not. It's not worth anything, actually. But imagine that you are a person or a group of people that have everything that you could possibly want. Everything that you can possibly imagine having, these people have it. So they want for nothing. They have to invent something of greater value for themselves than what they already possess. And so to be completely like transparent and honest, that pearl is worthless to you and I because that pearl isn't going to put bread on the table necessarily. Like I can't eat the pearl. That pearl is not going to protect my door at night from someone coming to rob me. That pearl is not going to give me earthly power. It's just a pearl. It's a thing. I can't eat it. I can't drive around in it. It's not going to protect me from the rain. I need bread on my table. I need to pay bills. I need to put gas in my car. These are things that have value to me because I need them to live my life. But if I already have everything that I need and more, I have to go find something and assign value to that thing so that then my friends see, well, I have one of these and you don't. And the more rare it is and the more human suffering and death we throw at it, by the way, like a diamond, the more valuable then it's appraised at. But then once you, re- you realize and you learn that the diamond market is manipulated, the pearl market is manipulated by people that deal in these things, it's all a scam, just like the art market. Art is manipulated and it's a scam. These things don't actually have any inherent value to them, to normal people, to people that are just trying to pay the bills and put food on the table. But to people that are wealthy in earthly terms, they have a lot of material, many material possessions, they serve mammon they don't have anything of value anymore. Because what is value to them? A loaf of bread? No, of course not. A car? Like They don't worry about maintenancing or servicing their car. They don't worry about making sure there's toilet paper in the bathroom. They, they don't worry about what kind of bread is in the pantry. These things aren't even a part of their daily life. They want for nothing and therefore they have to create greater value out of something that has no inherent value. And then they convince us that it's valuable so that we'll go and dig it up or die for it, or die for it. And so pearl divers, 
live a miserable life so that they can get these pearls that other people will pay millions of dollars for. Why? Because they already have everything they could possibly want. And rather than try to improve the lives of the pearl divers or the people that give their blood for these diamonds, instead of lifting these people out of poverty, creating schools, stabilizing the economy, creating an infrastructure that allows these people to thrive and go to school and improve their lives, they put a, they put a rock on their finger and go, look, how, look at my rock, look how expensive this is. And because we're so brainwashed, we will then take out a loan to buy one of these rocks and put it on the finger of our fiance so that she can then say, look at the carrots, look at how big this rock is. Is that really a determinant of our love, money, and how much money we spend on a rock? Is that really what defines love for us? Or is it the fear that we'll be judged? Because is that a yellow diamond? Is that just a, a cheap old $300 diamond? Really, that's all you can afford? Wow, you really care, right? It's fear. It's low-level fear, but it's brainwashing. <clears throat> and it starts as soon as you're old enough to understand what a diamond is. And if you don't, they'll explain it to you. But go back. 100, 200, go to pre-industrialized life. Do you know how many people had diamonds? Less than 1% of the population. Why? Because everybody else was living in poverty and just trying to survive day to day. And so like H.L. Mencken wrote, the whole aim of practical politics, the whole aim of politics is to keep the populace alarmed. That is demanding to be led to safety. And how do they do this? by menacing society with an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them being imaginary. So Mencken read Seneca. And so the whole aim of practical politics, the whole aim of politics is keep us alarmed, keep us afraid, so that we demand that they lead us to safety. And how do they do this? They throw hobgoblins at us. An endless series of wars, an endless series of diseases, an endless series of crises. And most of them are imaginary. So many people have written about this over thousands of years. So many people have recognized this and explained it and taught it and yelled it from the rooftops and made videos and movies and lectured about it. How can we possibly keep falling for this? Because fear is powerful. That's how powerful fear is. Even when we know what, it's, what it is, even when we know that they're using it to manipulate us, we still fall for it. And so... This is something that my friend Stephen gave to me, and I truly appreciate this, and I appreciate him for it. I'm, my, my congregation jokes that I should trademark this because I use it almost constant, every week with them, and it's twofold. And this is on the faith side of the house. So, you know, take this for what it's worth for, from the Christian side of the house. You can't look for human solutions to spiritual problems, right? When you do, you just end up frustrated, more anxious, more afraid, more angry, more everything that's not going to calm or give you peace. And what that means is, looking for human solutions to spiritual problems, is that whatever these politicians are doing as far as manipulating us with fear, in the letter, the first letter of John, for example, he says that tetelestai fear, that is tetelestai in Greek means it is finished, it is complete, it's the last word of Jesus on the cross. It's often translated into English as perfect, which is a stupid translation because that actually isn't what that word means. Tetelestai means it is finished, it's complete, it's tied off, check is in the bank. So when John says, perfect love drives out fear in the modern English translations, that word tetelestai that he's using is to point us back 
to the cross to say, hey, remember Jesus died for the sins of the world? That drives out all fear. And so God, Jesus, drives out all fear. So when your eyes are focused on Jesus and is focused on God, who is the master and commander of our lives, you have nothing to fear. He will provide all that you need for your daily bread. He will give you everything that you need for this body and life and the life to come. So keep your eyes fixed on the tetelestai, on the it is finished of Jesus on the cross. There's your rescue. There's your safety. There's your salvation. And when you turn away from your tetelestai, when you turn away from Good Friday and Jesus and all that, you're going to go back to fear again. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 23 says, he sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He sets a table before my face, right in front of me. He sets a table, a feast. And what the psalmist is saying is, even though my enemies surround me, I'm going to feast. And they're not going to do anything except sit there and rattle their sabers and yell threats at me. And I'm going to eat Thanksgiving dinner while they do it. Because God set the table and God's going to protect me, even though my enemies surround me. And lastly, as 1 Peter says, you know, the devil is like a lion prowling around looking for someone he can devour, right? And what I point out pastorally is it says that he prowls, but it doesn't say that he ever devours. And the problem then is that when we turn away from God and we look at the devil, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting allergy season, uh, 1 Peter 5.8, there we go, 1 Peter 5.8. It says he's looking for someone to to devour, but he doesn't devour us because God protects us from him. We're protected by the line of Judah, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of John. The the line of Judah, Judah is our protection. And so the devil may prowl around like a lion, but he can't devour us because we're protected by a greater lion, a bigger lion. This is the point of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. And so what happens though? is that when we go looking for human solutions to spiritual problems, we don't look beyond the earthly, the temporary, the kind of the facade on the front of the building. And so we don't ask the deeper question, which is like, what's behind this government using fear against its citizens? What's behind this war? What's behind this crisis? What's behind this conflict? What's driving it? It's not just politicians trying to maintain power and control. It's not just because these two sides can't get along. It's not just because we won't talk to each other. There's something deeper at play here, something that's beyond just the earthly temporary facade. It's spiritual. And if we don't address that, then there's just going to continue to be war. There's going to continue to be crisis and conflict. There's going to continue to be fear because we're not recognizing the spiritual battle that's at play behind these earthly events. And again, like my friend Stephen says, the earthly activities, the earthly events are the manifestation of spiritual conflict. And if we miss that, then we've missed the whole point. So then secondly to that, when we hear the news then, whatever it may be, hear the news, listen to it, take it in, then go to the Word of God, go to the Bible, and pray over, find, and apply the Word of God that applies to this event, this activity, And then pray through the verses of the Bible that apply to that. Pray over them verse by verse. Pray that God's judgment and justice would punish evil and stop it. That God would save the children and the innocents. 
and that ultimately we would be led to repentance and faith, to depend on God for everything that we need for this body and life. When we do that, when we turn away from the distractions and the diversions, when we turn away from the fear-mongering and the manufactured crises or even the actual crises, whether it's the rumor of a war or a real actual conflict, just take all of that, find the word of God that applies to it, and then pray against that thing that threatens to kill, maim, rape, exploit, and destroy other people, God's creatures, and the earth. We get so caught up in the distraction, we get so overwhelmed and inundated with the noise of, of fear, and then everyone around us is clamoring for somebody to take the reins and lead us to safety. And not surprisingly, the government's always there saying, well, we're here and we're not really doing anything. We'd love to do that for you. We're just going to need all of your sons to go and die. We're going to need all your money and taxes to support the war effort. And um, your daughters, yeah, we're going to need them too. In the old days, it was so we could put them in our harem. Now it's so we can send them over to die too. And this is why false flags are so useful. This is why the tactic of false flag events and the implementation of propaganda via repetition are so powerful. In fact, John Adams himself, one of the founding fathers of the United States, one of the first presidents, said, fear is the foundation of most governments. Fear is the foundation of most governments. That's it. That's it. Once you accept that, that truth, you never ever trust the government again, nor should you, because it is composed of people and people are easily swayed one way or the other based on the amount of money that is thrown at them, the amount of influence that is given to them and the amount of power that they are granted. And yet those politicians who are like these ugly actors that stand in front of cameras all the time, they work for somebody else. And those people that they work for, those people work for somebody else. And ultimately, spiritually, all of those people work for one person who's at the top of the pyramid. And it's not God. He sees himself as a God. He wants to be worshipped as a God, but he's not the living God. And so if we can't recognize and then call a spade a spade, if we can't say our culture is demonic, if we can't say that our government is evil, and that the people that participate in this campaign of fear are a part of the problem. If we can't collectively come together and acknowledge that, then we are going to continue to be scared into submission. And when we are scared into submission, <clears throat> we will do anything that they want us to. And we'll do it blindly and obediently. Because safety is more important to us than almost anything else. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan is bread, being satisfied, being satiated. Throw yourself off the temple roof and the angels will catch you. Safety. And lastly, bend a knee and worship me and all the kingdoms of the earth are yours. Success, power. Satisfaction, safety, success, the three temptations of the devil. He barely ever gets past the first one. He, he just promises us bread. Bread and circuses. That's all we want. He never even gets to the second two most of the time. But those are the devil's temptations. I'll put bread on your table. I'll keep you safe. 
and I'll conquer the world, and I'll give it to you. And so these false flags always come in the form of satisfaction, safety, and success every single time. And so is it Connor Boyack? Connor Boyack says this, physical attacks lead to a corresponding increase of trust in political leaders and submission to them. This effect is likely the same, whether the attack be a surprise attack, known to political leaders yet allowed to happen, you know what he's talking about, or directly orchestrated by these same leaders who stand to benefit from the increased trust and submission. False flag operations are used because people generally do not have access to all of the details, and therefore they are prone to rely upon what they are told, and thus are easily deceived. People will, for the most part, believe what they are told in times of crisis. And so government officials, whether their motives are good or evil, capitalize on completely or they capitalize on or completely fabricate the crises. And that's called feardom. Feardom, D-O-M, feardom. How politicians exploit your emotions and what you can do to stop them by Connor Boyack, B-O-Y-A-C-K. In fact, I will quote that in the abstract for the show so that you can hyperlink to it and click on it and buy it if you want it. And so to jump to Joseph Goebbels, though, master of propaganda that he was, he understood the power of repetition. He wrote, it would not be impossible to prove with sufficient repetition and a psychological understanding of the people concerned that a square is in fact a circle. They are mere words, and words can be molded until they clothe ideas in disguise. And he learned that from Edward Bernays, the master of modern propaganda. And Bernays learned it from his grandpa, Sigmund Freud. If you can get inside people's minds and understand what motivates them to do what they do, and if you can locate what scares them the most, you can tell them that a square is a circle and they will believe it, even though their eyes see exactly that's a square. But it's through repetition. If you repeat a lie enough, it becomes true to the people. You can alter their perception. If you wear a paper mask, you can't get COVID and die. What well, says right on the back of the box does not prevent the spread of COVID. It says it on the box. And people actually ignored the back of the box for the masks and said, but the person on TV told me I have to wear a mask, otherwise I'll die. And I would hold up the box and say, it's right there. I'd send them a cre- screenshot of the box. It's right there. And they wouldn't believe me. Why? Because the people on TV every single day were producing fear porn that said, if you don't wear a mask, you're all going to die. If we don't put plexiglass up, you know, between me and the cashier, we're going to die. You even have to wear a mask when you're alone in your car because you could kill the person in the car next to you by magic, right? The magic six feet. And of course, after the fact, they admitted that's all a lie. It's not true. It never was true. And people say, well, we don't want to talk about that anymore because we don't want to acknowledge our shame. We don't want to admit that we were duped and deceived and manipulated. We don't want to repent and learn from this. And so here we are again. We're right back where we started. And over and over it goes. (laughs) Which is why George Orwell said about propaganda, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidarity to pure wind. And there you go. And as Plato said, ignorance is the root of misfortune then. The less you know and the more you ignore about reality, 
the easier it's going to be for you to fall into all sorts of misfortune, manipulation, send you off to die for a fight that you didn't start, nor do you want to end, or to sell off your future for the promise of a better tomorrow that will never come. Voltaire even said, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Again, nailed it. (laughs) Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. That's the reality of life. In fact, Solzhenitsyn, I think it was, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, political genius lies in extracting success even from the people's ruin. And so political success comes at the destruction of my life and your life. That's the genius of politics is that the politician actually convinces you and me that our success lies in our destruction. Again, it's like saying if you kill yourself, your life will be better. Well, technically, I don't have to pay bills anymore, right? I don't have to worry about getting up and going to work anymore. I don't have to worry about being heartbroken or have to worry about the next war or taxes being raised. So in a sense, that's actually true. But I actually like breathing and I I like living. I like life a lot. And so being told that death is better for everybody, well, think about that. And yet people will euthanize themselves. People will abort babies because they've been told you're better off without life. You're enriched without life. And so Stanley Milgram, who I talk about all the time because the Milgram experiments are playing out in real time constantly, Stanley Milgram said, the disappearance of a sense of responsibility, otherwise called a diffusion of responsibility, but this disappearance of a sense of responsibility is the most far-reaching consequence of submission to authority. It, well, I'm just doing my job, right? The famous statement, not from the Nazis, but from everybody that I talked to in 2020 and 2021, and even 2022. I'm just doing my job. I don't make the rules. I'm just enforcing the policies. Why? Because it's not my responsibility. It's the administration. It's the board of directors. It's my boss. It's the government. They said it, so I have to do it. That's diffusion of responsibility. Their submission to authority leads to the death of other people. It leads to the ruination of businesses, the destruction of families and homes and neighborhoods. It leads to death. I know people who have died because they could not receive a kidney transplant because they weren't vaccinated. And yet they were asked after they died if the hospital could harvest their organs because they can't use vaccinated and boosted organs. So they're not going to operate on you because you're not vaccinated. But if you get vaccinated and you die, they can't use your organs because the vaccine, well, we all know what it does now. So I know people that were turned away from hospitals who could have performed the surgery but didn't unless they were vaccinated. And when the people said, I don't want to be vaccinated because I don't want to die from blood clots or some other blood-borne autoimmune disorder that I know is going to come as a consequence, if not now, later, the hospital said, well, then we're not going to operate. So you can either take your chances down the road, dying from some blood-borne cancer, some autoimmune disease, blood clots, whatever it might be, Or you can die from kidney failure. What's your choice? But it's your choice. And this is the thing that I want to emphasize too is they always pose it as it being your choice, right? It's your choice. We're not forcing you to get the vaccine. It's your choice. You don't have to get the surgery here. You can go to some other hospital. It's your choice. 
but that's diffusion of responsibility. That's essentially washing your hands of your own sin and saying, hey man, if you die, it's your choice. It's not because I refuse to take care of you. It's not because I refuse to operate. It's your choice. And so F.A. Harper said that no man, or sorry, no, he, what he said was the man who knows what freedom means will find a way to be free. And that's the important thing, is that a man who knows what freedom means will never blindly submit to authority. He will find a way to be free. But even that then will be used as a psyop against him. The false flag will be, how can we make him think he's free, a free thinker, a free actor, he's living free. Land of the free, home of the brave. If we can get them to believe they're free, while also taxing 40% of their income on top of what we're already doing to tax them. Then we can manipulate them and use them. And so people that were against the Ukraine conflict are now in favor of the Israel conflict. And the people that are against the Israel conflict will be against the next conflict. Believing that they're free thinkers, believing that they are free to choose for themselves which side they choose to be on. But again, binary thinking, that's manipulation. So rather than be against everybody or be for everybody, rather than call everyone to repent and to rethink or to reorient themselves, pick a side. Well, I'm free. Okay, versus, well, all those other people that are unfree. Okay, okay. Well, I'm a truther. And I know this is a conspiracy. And I know that the shadow government's behind this and the deep state's manipulating this. I know that. Okay. You know who else knows that? The deep state. And that's why they manipulate you and feed you information on your, on, in your chat rooms and on your telegram pages in order to manipulate you because they know if we keep them divided, well, guess what? This is why it's interesting. I'm listening to someone right now who works, he has an organization that fights against human child sex trafficking. And he has been accused of himself engaged, being engaged in human child sex trafficking and accused of being sexually abusive. And I'm not talking about Tim Ballard. He has also been accused of these things. Um, but so is this, this ex-spec uh, ops guy that I'm listening to right now. And I find it interesting that every time someone tries to fight human sex trafficking and they get to a certain level of notoriety, people start to find out about the organization, support it, put their prayers and their money behind it, will come to work for it, the sexual accusations come out. Because in the past, other people who have run organizations that fight human trafficking, fight sex trafficking, they're exposed as being human traffickers. So of course it sticks and it's heinous and it's, again, it, it, it evokes a certain emotion from people. The sexual exploitation of children, the raping of children for money, for profit is emotional and evocative and rightly so. But again, the people that manipulate us know that. And so the people on one side will downplay and say, well, it's not as bad as people think and you're making a big deal out of it, calm down. It's bad, but it's not that bad. They're being manipulated and siloed, so they, they only see information and only take in information that feeds that narrative. Those of us on the other side who say it's actually more widespread than you can possibly imagine, and it's happening in every major city and town in the United States to this day, because the United States is the number one consumer of child pornography and the number one consumer of child um, prostitutes. They also know that. And so they weaponize that against us on the other side. So they control the narrative and the counter narrative at the same time, which is why I'm at the point now where I just shut out all the noise as much as possible and say, 
I'm against all of it. If you're for it, if you're, if you're for child sex trafficking and you have nothing positive to say as far as how we fight it, how we defend ourselves against it, how we call it out and name it, I don't want to talk to you. I'm not going to waste my time. You're living in a fantasy world. I don't occupy that reality. If, on the other hand, every time someone who fights human child sex trafficking is accused through the internet of sex trafficking or of sex abuse or of using their position to exploit their donors, I don't even want to hear about that either until all the evidence comes out. Because if you show me a screenshot or you show me an article from a website or the Washington Post or New York Times or whatever, or this, this news agency reported on it, or these women came forward from 12 years ago. All right, give it to me. Why are they coming forward now? Where are these, why weren't these accusations raised when they formed this organization, when they went through all that they needed to do to set up this charity? During the vetting process, why isn't all the people that work with them over the years, how did they not know these things? Like I know guys who are in the field, they're parts of strike teams that go into countries and work with local law enforcement to arrest human traffickers and to rescue children and put them in these recovery programs. And some of these guys have been working with the people on their team for decades in the military before they even got out. And I'll hear things like, well, you know, you know that guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I know that guy personally. Like, I know that guy. And he would never do those things. And they're like, well, this website or this guy, I'm like, but I know him personally. And I trust him. I would trust him with my children in a foreign country if I wasn't there. And you're telling me that after like decades of working with this team, this, this one guy on this team, when they're all in the field together, he's engaged in human trafficking, but all these other guys are completely ignorant of it. Like these are all special operators. These are all like tip of the spear guys, like excellence is their standard. They don't know. And I'm not saying that, that they might not know, but I'm saying is, isn't it interesting that whenever someone fights human sex trafficking, human child sex trafficking, the same accusations come against them every single time. And so whether they're true or not, what I'm saying is we need to step back and not be so quick to react because we're being manipulated one way or the other. Again, the, the, the FBI and the deep state, the CIA, the NSA, the Justice Department, the State Department, they control the narrative and they control the counter narrative because they know how to divide us into two camps. And if you try and stand in the middle and say to both sides, you both need to calm down and talk with each other and work this out and figure out what's actually the truth, then you're attacked by both sides for not to choosing a side. So the side that, let's use this example of Ukraine and Russia. If I say I'm against Russia for, you know, what they're doing, because I think that Putin, not a good guy. Then they're like, oh, so you're pro-Ukraine. I'm like, no, actually, I despise Zelensky and I despise his regime. And I think he's a puppet dictator and he's pathetic and pitiful. And I think that this is a money laundering operation for the United States government. And I think that they use Ukraine to develop bioweapons in the numerous labs that have been captured and destroyed. Uh, it's a center for human trafficking. It's a center for gun running and money laundering. And I think that the Biden crime family and the Clintons and Obamas are right at the very heart of it. Oh, so you're pro-Putin. Like, I just told you, I don't think that Putin is a good actor either. Well, then which side are you on? I'm like, I'm not on any side. I believe that two things can be true simultaneously, which is Zelensky and Putin are both evil people and their regimes are evil because they don't care about who they hurt. But all these treaties were broken by the UN that promised that they wouldn't come up and they wouldn't go into the Donbass and they wouldn't 
butt up against Russia's borders. And so Putin is like, I'm done. You've broken all these treaties with me. I'm done. I'm going to fight back. Then you have, like I said, this coup in 2014 in Ukraine to replace the sitting president with this puppet dictator. Again, a comedian who played a president on a TV show. That would be like taking Martin Sheen from, um, what's that TV show that he was on? The West Wing? Taking Martin Sheen, an actor playing the president, and then making him the president. It's the same thing. <laughs> they did it and we don't even care. We don't even care to look at how he got into power. And so I'm saying both sides are evil because both sides are trying to destroy everybody and they're doing it at the expense of their own citizens. And why are they doing it? For power, for control, for all of the benefits that they get from all these outside actors who are pushing them into this. But as I've said before, we did it in Afghanistan, we did it in Iraq, we've done it in every country that we've gone to, which is we made promises to the people. If you help us and support us, we won't abandon you. And then we always abandon them, right? It's like, I can't remember who said it, but it was, you know, it's terrible. It's a terrible thing to have the United States as an enemy. It's even worse to have them as a friend because they make promises that you know they're never going to keep. And yet you have no choice because if you don't align yourself with them, they'll declare you an enemy and destroy you. And so even if you know what freedom is and you want to be free, the people that are seeking to manipulate us through fear are going to seek to manipulate me in the way of how can I be free? Home of the free, right? Or uh, yeah, land of the free, home of the brave. And you're like, well, that's bullshit. I'm not free. <laughs> I pay 40% of my income in taxes. And yeah, I have a choice. I have a choice not to pay. And then I have a choice to get audited and go to jail, right? I'm not free. If I don't want my children to, to be drafted and go fight in some foreign war that I don't believe in and some cause that I'm against, and so I say, you're not taking my children. Well, they're going to come and take my children away from me at the point of a gun because that's what they do, the federal government. And those people who come and do it, those soldiers, those reservists, whoever they may be who come to my house with their guns and say, we're taking your children by force. And if you resist, we're going to shoot you. What are they going to say? Well, we're just, we're just following orders. We're just doing our job. It's like, but you're a citizen of the United States. You're a member of my community. You're my brother and sister. You're, you're like, we're a part of the same team. Just following orders, just doing what I'm told. It strips us of humanity when we do that. It strips the other person of humanity when we say things like that. And that's what makes it easy then for us to hurt each other and destroy ourselves at the behest of the powers that are manipulating us through fear and insecurity for their own benefit. So finally, I'm going to quote Milton Mayer. It's a big quote, but I think it's really worth reading. It's from his book, They Thought They Were Free. Milton Mayer says, one doesn't see exactly where or how to move. Believe me, this is true. Each act, each occasion is worse than the last, but only a little worse, only a little. You wait for one great shocking occasion, thinking that others, when such a shock comes, will join with you in resisting somehow right? After 9-11, let's all get together and make sure that never happens again. Okay, great. How are we going to do that? Patriot Act. What's that? We need you to give away all your rights to privacy. Okay, as long as we're saved. Okay, we're safe. Great. Okay, but we have terroristic threats everywhere now. Sleeper cells all across the United States. This should sound familiar because Chris Ray just went on TV yesterday and said the exact same thing that we were told on September 12th, 2001 and December 13th, 2001 and so on and so forth. 
which is why we need to go to Iraq and Afghanistan to fight the terrorists where they're at. Even though we know that it was the Saudis who were behind the attacks on 9-11. But they have oil and so we can't attack them. <laughs> so we blamed Iran or we blamed Afghanistan and we blamed uh, the axis of evil. Actually, Iran was a part of that axis of evil. And then when that got exhausted, we all got tired of it because we're all like, yeah, where's the, I don't see it happening. They pivoted to something else. And then they pivoted to something else. And then they pivoted to something else. And since COVID has now played out and the lawsuits have been filed to prevent the mask mandates from being kicked back into effect and the lockdowns from going back into effect, they had to pivot away from that to Ukraine. And then Ukraine wore itself out. So now they're pivoting to Israel, Hamas. See, again, one great shocking occasion after another. And we think to ourselves, well, we're over it and everyone's figured this out, right? They're constantly keeping us in a state of agitation and unrest. Like everybody sees this, right? Until all of a sudden it's like, no, I really care about this thing. And I'm really going to take a side now because this is really important because the people told me or because I am team X or because I come from family Y or because I'm a part of party Z. And so the resistance is also, um, well, it has an expiration date. But then Mayor goes on to say, the one great shocking occasion when tens or hundreds or thousands will join with you never comes. And that's the difficulty. If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the first and the smallest, thousands, yes, millions would have been sufficiently shocked. But of course, this isn't the way it happens. In between comes all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible each of them preparing you not to be shocked by the next. And one day, one day too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible about them, all rush in upon you, and the burden of self-deception has grown too heavy, and some minor incident collapses everything all at once. And then you see that everything, everything has changed. And now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Welcome to 2023 in the United States. It didn't just happen over the last couple of years, not even the last five to 10 years. Little by little, year after year, crisis after crisis, event after event, got us to where we are today. And now everyone has been transformed by these events so that no one has been transformed by these events. It's the frog in boiling water analogy. How did the frog boil to death? By degrees. He never noticed until it was too late. And that's us. We've been transformed by crisis after crisis, after threat after threat, whether real or imagined until we are where we are today, divided along binary lines, black and white, red and blue, good and bad, them and us. And no one ever steps back and say, hey, maybe we should just get together and figure this out for ourselves. Maybe we should wait until we get more information and we're more informed. Maybe we should stop thriving off of fear and insecurity. Maybe we should understand that the people in power seem to want us to be afraid constantly of each other and of the other, them. When it seems like there's always a them to be worried about. 
And there's always an other that we have to be afraid of. And there's always the other side that's coming to take our stuff. Maybe they're not. Maybe we're being manipulated. Maybe we're puppets on strings. Maybe it's time to cut the strings and be a real little boy like Pinocchio had to go through. But instead, we lie to ourselves. And we say, no, this time it's real. This time it's the worst that it's ever been. This climate crisis, this one's real, for sure. Well, read all the tweets from 2000, 2001 about climate crisis, right? Go watch an Al Gore speech from the 90s now. Nothing came true. None of it was real. All of it was concocted. All of it was a lie. Just like everything about climate crisis right now is a lie. All concocted, all manipulated data. All the science experts are paid off, bought and paid for. It's all a lie. Go look into how much human effort and resources are expended to make one lithium battery, for example. And then tell me how you're being green and saving the planet. Go find out how much of the coral reef, the Great Barrier Reef, has actually grown and then how big it is compared to what it used to be. Go find out about Antarctica expanding. Go find out about the polar bears exploding in population. Go learn about the actual benefits of nuclear power. Go look at how a windmill is actually paid for and what it actually takes to run a windmill. And here's a spoiler, petroleum. It takes petroleum. It takes gas. Take the time to read, to learn, not from people you agree with, but from a variety of sources, a variety of, of writers or speakers, trying to formulate a well-rounded opinion and recognize it's just my opinion based on what I know, but there's so much that I don't know. And this is why I, for my part anyways, especially after my recent physical struggles, simply unfollowed all the political channels that I used to watch on YouTube. And I ignore all my truth or friends now. I really do. I'm sorry to disappoint, but I ignore them. I read what they send me. I'm open to what they're sending me. I'm not saying, you know, I don't look at it because I just said be open to different, you know, voices. I look at it. I acknowledge it. But I pay it no mind. I give no weight or value to it because it's all noise. It's all distraction. And at least for myself as a Christian, I believe that God, that God, God <laughs> I believe that God ultimately has everything under control. And that the word of God has something that applies to every situation, past, present, and future. And that all of this noise and all of these distractions and all this fear-mongering, it distracts me from the source of my faith and my strength, the source of my comfort and my hope, and the source of the answers that I need to understand what's happening day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year. And once I'm deprived of that, I become afraid and insecure. And now I'm easily manipulated again. And my anxiety, for example, is a physical manifestation of a spiritual struggle. That is, I turn my back to Christ and instead worry about the next thing and how I can cut it off at the pass. And so, for myself anyways, and if this helps you, I, I give this to you for free. I have prayed more the last three months than I think I've ever prayed since I became a Christian in 1997, 96. Because I recognize now I need to pray more and talk to God more. I need to be in the word of God more 
and listen to other people's words less. Stop listening to human solutions to spiritual problems. Call upon God's angels to protect me and watch over and guard me and lend me their strength. Ask God to protect me and be my fortress and my refuge and my shield against evil and to give me discernment and wisdom so that I can recognize when good is good and evil is evil, when someone is being genuine and wants to be a part of my life for good reasons, and when they want to try and manipulate me and exploit me for their own reasons and purposes. And so if you are a person of faith, I urge you, I encourage you to think about that, think deeply on that. One of the things that I've started to do, other than just write poetry or aphorisms, is I've started to write prayers. Because writing prayers, for me, is like writing poetry, and it helps me focus my attention on, for me, what is ultimately important, what ultimately matters, which is my relationship with God. Because the United States government doesn't know me, and the people that claim to serve me don't care about me. And they don't care about you either. And they're not coming to rescue you, they're not coming to help you, they don't care about you. They only care about themselves and their donors. And these wars that we're told to care about, what about all the other wars that we're told to ignore? The genocide in Yemen, for example. We're told to, like, we're not talked, we don't talk about that. What about the child labor in the Congo and all of the children that are dying to make lithium batteries for our electric vehicles or just our phones? Why don't we care about those children and stopping that? Why does the corporate media never, ever want to report on human child sex trafficking? Even though we are the number one consumer of child pornography and the number one consumer of child sex trafficking in the whole world. It's a crisis. It's a big deal. It's over 50 million kids a year. Why is that not one of the most important topics and conversations of our day? Because when everyone is transformed, then no one is transformed. They're priming us. They're grooming our children. Go look at what the World Health Organization just said out loud on video from a podium about when we're supposed to ch teach our children about sex, masturbation, having sex, all this stuff. They're talking about starting at four years old. Well, there's only one group of people I know who want to sexualize a four-year-old, and they're called pedophiles. They're child rapists. Why aren't we having a conversation about these unelected people who are telling us how to teach our children? And why, then, are we surprised when these agendas find their way into our schools, into our homes, into our entertainment and our culture? When we're no longer scandalized or shocked by impropriety, lack of modesty, immorality, what's demonic, because we've been transformed little by little over the years. And now we just accept the demonic and the evil as normal, even virtuous. And nobody says anything because everyone's afraid to be singled out. So choose a team. Think binary versus what if I just think for myself? What if I try the best that I can to be my own person and think for myself? And so again, to end where I began, there are more things that are likely to frighten us than there are to crush us. And so we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. Seneca, letters from a stoic. As much as you can, try and keep yourself grounded in what's real and not what's in imaginary. Use your imagination to be creative 
and to benefit other people. But don't let your imagination drive you to live in terror or fear of the unknown, of a real or imagined crises. Try and keep yourself grounded. Avoid running off and writing scripts that, for movies that will never happen. Be grateful. Find something to be grateful about. Again, I just did three funerals in two days. Well, actually one prayer service and two funerals, sorry. But I had three people die in four days. And I did a prayer service and two funerals in two days. That's real. That's real. And when I put my hand on a coffin and I talk about the resurrection of the dead to eternal life, everyone that's listening to me announce that and read from the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's real for them. That body, that corpse is real. That grave is real. That dirt that you can hold in your hands, that's real. That person's lifeless body that you put your hands on, that's real. The person sitting next to you in the pew that's holding on to you and mourning with you, that's real. That's real. And so the things that are imaginary, the things that threaten us from the corners of our mind, from the shadows, from under the bed or under the stairs at the back of the closet, the fear mongers and the, the fear pornographers on the TV, that's not real. It isn't. It's not real. And I think we need to do a much better job and be much more intentional and purposeful about making sure that we're grounded in reality and, and in what is real. Real friendships, in-person, interpersonal, real flesh and blood relationships. Real conversations about real subjects that really matter to us, that affect our lives immediately in a real way. And so whether it's just knocking on the table in front of you and reminding yourself, this table's real. And I'm at this table right now. This is real. I'm real. And what's happening right here, right now, this is real. I'm talking to you. This is real. What's happening on the other side of the world is not real. It's not a part of my right now. And there's nothing I can do to change the effects of what's happening on the other side of the world, one way or the other. And I need to focus on what's right in front of me, right here, right now and on the people that are right in front of me, right here, because they need me. And the people that are around you need you to be there for them in person, for real. And they need you to absolve them and forgive them in Jesus's name. They need you to take a hold of them and put your hands on them and say, it's going to be okay. I'm here now, and we're going to get through this together. They need you to be there for them and not casting your imagination across the seas to some real or imagined crisis that you can't affect the outcome of and you have no control over. And so what can actually crush you right now, right here in the present tense? Address that. What's truly scary right here, right now in the present tense that's real? Address that. And so use fear, as I said, as fuel. Use that fear as fuel to shore up your defenses, to develop new tactics and strategies to protect yourself, your family, and so on. Recognize that there is a civil war that is constantly going on in this country, but it's a bloodless civil war for the most part so far. But are you prepared? Are you prepared for the intellectual civil war? Are you prepared for the kinetic civil war? Are you prepared to educate your children in how to think and how to act and how to speak in such a way that they're good people and that they stay faithful to what matters most? How do we show up for each other, I think, is the most important thing that we need to focus on right now. In person, like I said, flesh and blood, what's real? Not romanticized, 
not dramatized, not writing scripts, but just saying, you're here right now. And what we're doing right now is real. So what can we do to make each other's lives better right now? What can we do to make our home better or our gym or work or school or our neighborhood or our community or our nation? What can we do to make it better? Well, we can start by not watching fear porn, not listening to it and taking it seriously and recognizing that we ultimately have control not over outside circumstances, to quote Epictetus, but we do have control over how we react to those things. So today then, I encourage you more than anything else to focus on, grab a hold of in actual reality, not just think about it, but grab a hold of what's real right now, whether it be a book or a glass or a cup or a person, whatever it might be, get a hold of it and realize this is real. This is real. And some of my fears are real, but most of them are not. Most of them are supplied for me by these dramatists, by these screenwriters that we call journalists, these politicians, these actors. It's not real. And they're manipulating us, and they're trying to control us for their own benefit. And if we can do that, we can start to change the tide. It's going to be violent. They're not going to like it. And the more, the more we push back and the closer we get to actual freedom and independence from them, the more violent they are going to push back. Be aware of that. They're not going to just roll over and give up power because we demand it. They're going to come after us. And the propaganda is going to ramp up and become more shrill and more urgent. The crises are going to become greater. They may even stage a terror attack on U.S. soil just to get us all back on, you know, marching in line. They will do that. If they overthrow governments in other countries, they will most likely do the same here to us at the local, state, and federal level. They'll overthrow other, they'll overthrow politicians to get power. They'll overthrow state and, and local um, political orders to maintain power. They'll kill their own citizens. They've done it in the past. They've admitted they've done it in the past. Remember the CIA, can, they, the CIA invented the term conspiracy theorists following the JFK assassination, and then admitted a couple of years ago, yeah, actually, we did kill him. <laughs> so they invented the term conspiracy theorist because people were saying that the government killed the president, and then after the fact said, actually, we did kill him, so you guys were right the whole time, <laughs> which is why we invented the term conspiracy theorist to convince all the normal people that you guys were a bunch of wingnuts, but you were right the whole time. Remember that that our government does not serve us, but they expect us to fully serve them without question, unconditionally. And so when you start to question and you start to push back, just like this podcast, they will push back against you and they will accuse you of all kinds of heinous things to destroy your reputation, to put you in the, the place of villain, to demonize you. They'll do it. They've done it over and over again. And it works every time because we don't pay attention. They use our emotions against us. They use our fears against us. And so that's where it begins, to walk without fear. And the way that I do it for myself, and this is just me, I shut out the noise. I just, I turn away from the noise. I repent of listening to it. And I say, Lord, I need you to give me a spirit of discernment so I can differentiate between what's real and what's not, what's true and what's a lie. I need you to show me the truth and the way that I need to go for myself and my family because I don't know, because there's so much noise and there are so many crises and I can't keep up, which is exactly what they want. The controllers want us 
frustrated, exhausted, unable to keep up so that we say, you know, just tell me what I need to know. Just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I need to rest. Shut out the noise. Shut out the fear porn. Pray. Seek discernment. Educate yourself. Focus on what's real. Lift each other up. Help each other. Be there for each other. That's how we change this. That's all I got. Hour and 39 minutes. I had three weeks worth of conversation stored up inside of me. I hope that that helped. I hope that what I went through and the names and authors that you wrote down and the quotes, I hope that helps steer you in a direction that you can kind of go read those people and make up your own mind about whether they were, you know, helpful or not and telling the truth or not and share that stuff with people. Share this podcast, share those people that I quoted, give that to other people, start the conversation, do it that way, right? You don't have to be the smartest, the most educated, the most articulate, just start with what's real. Just start by showing up for people and helping them. That's all that matters. Be a good person, right? Don't talk about it, be it, as Marcus Aurelius said. So thank you so very much for hanging in there and being patient with me while I dealt with, you know, my struggles and difficulties and ailments. And yeah, that's all I got, Space Monkeys. I'll talk to you again real soon. Peace.